Good morning, everyone. This is the DOLW3 podcast, and we are a group of watchers in the Diocese of Lansing, Michigan. Uh, today, we're going to start um, something new. We're going to start a new book, Letter to a Suffering Church by Bishop. Um, a Bishop Speaks on the Sexual Abuse Crisis by Bishop Robert Barron. Um, but I want you to always keep in mind, you know, we just finished reading uh, Randy Ingalls and her book, on the right of sodomy. Um, you know, she's like a voice in the wilderness. You know, those books have been shelved. Um, we have the scandals in the church. Um, and now we have this letter, um, letter to the suffering church, um, a bishop's take on it. But I always want you to remember, um, you know, in our ministry, we advocate for voices. We advocate for the unheard voices in the Catholic Church and out of the Catholic Church. So a couple things in our podcast, there are some overarching concepts to keep in mind. Our goal is to see things as they are, see things as whole. This is always repeated to remind us what our task is and our goal. If we stay on task, we will be more productive in achieving our goal. And if you are like us with family and employment distractions, constant pointers, keep us on task. We remind ourselves that the Catholic Church tells us who we are. There are wolves in sheep's clothing and shepherd's clothing within the church. And see if you can distinguish those wolves from the sheep, you know, like we have been doing in the um, the witness literature of Randy Ingalls. Um, and also like today when we're reading um, Bishop's, Bishop Barron's book. So with that, uh, I want to tell you, too, why it is important. Why is it important to know that that the church tells us who we are? Because since the beginning of time, others desire to steal you away from our father. They first attempt to do this by making you over into their understanding of what the image, what the image you are to be, what you are to look like. Uh, in, re- in the repeated scenarios discussed in the podcast from Randy Ingalls, th- her book on the, the right of sodomy, the facts she states matter because they drive an agenda, the culture of death. The power of darkness is dispersed with light, and the purest form of that light comes from the mind of the church, not from the mind of the clerics and their staff, but from the formamentus of the church. So be cautious when one lone wolf, cleric, or his staff offers their opinion on a matter, refraining in that moment from stating explicitly that there is an opinion of the church and they just do not know it, so they're offering you their guess. Yeah, be careful of guesses, everyone. So I'm going to read you a little little reading from Jeremiah today um, as I was preparing for this podcast today. Um, it seemed to really strike me. It's uh, Jeremiah 14 and it's uh, verses 17 and 18. And um, for those of you who don't know, um, Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And there was a, uh, there was a severe drought going on. Um, people had strayed from God. There were false prophets going on. This reminded me a lot of the times that we see today um, with the evil in the church. Let my eyes stream with tears day and night without rest over the great destruction which overwhelms the virgin daughter of my people. 
over her incurable wound. If I walk out into the field, look, those slain by the sword. If I enter the city, look, those consumed by hunger. Even the prophet and the priest forage in a land they know not. So we're going to stop there. Um, it just was a, a meditation on, um, you know, how bad things can get. And, um, and to, to not get discouraged because one thing that we always have and, you know, through the teachings of the Catholic Church, through the knowings of how the church has um, gone through all its trials and tribulations um, throughout, um, throughout the history of God, you know, coming to his people and loving his people and leading his people. So, um, so I was, was looking up one of the words that, um, that Bishop Barron uses in his book, and you'll, we'll come across it. Um, but this is something that I think really, you know, connects to what we're talking about here. So this is by a social psychologist, uh, Elliot Aronson and Carol Travis quotations here when people feel a strong connection to a political party leader ideology and I might add priests and I'm I'm going to finish this and then I'll tell you why okay so I'm here we'll start again when people feel a strong connection to a political party leader priest ideology or belief they are more likely to let that allegiance do their thinking for them and distort or ignore the evidence that challenge, challenges those loyalties. We have to be so careful because as cradle Catholics, we have been taught, you know, to um, honor your priests, um, you know, to do, and, you know, you become friends with them, you know, and, and those friendships. And when you see something wrong being done, you know, if you cannot go to that priest and say, look, you know, you're doing something wrong, you're straying, whatever. If you cannot say that and him not take that seriously and, you know, go inward and look for where he's going wrong or, you know, um, moving away from the gospel and the teachings of the church, you know, get a problem there. And if you're afraid of losing that friendship because you're speaking that truth or you're even afraid to speak that truth, um, you need to look inside, you know, where your loyalties are and where should our loyalties be? Well, number one, we start with the Father. We have to remember that priests are created. Our Father is the Creator. He is the one that created everything, even the priests. So we have to remember that, you know, priests are human beings. You know, they like kudos, they like power, they like sex. They like all the things that we like, you know, and um, it is by prayer and virtue that they continue on the path to holiness, and we are to correct them. So that is the whole point of this ministry, is to correct the priest, not to um, put a sword through their heart or whatever and to kill them off, but to love them, to have their them look inside and see where they are going wrong and and um, go according to to following Jesus okay so I just thought that term and you'll hear it in the book today um, it's called cognitive disson dissonance and I looked that up I 
I uh, had read about it before, but I, I needed to refresh my memory. So here we go. Letter to a Suffering Church. A bishop speaks on the crisis of sexual abuse. Bishop Robert Barron. We're going to begin with the preface. This book is a cri de cour, a cry from the heart. I am a lifelong Catholic, and I've been a priest for 33 years and a bishop for four years. I have dedicated my life to the church. The sexual abuse scandal has been for me, for millions of other Catholics, and especially for the victim survivors, lacerating. I have written this book for my fellow Catholics who feel understandably demoralized, scandalized, angry beyond words, and ready to quit. What I finally urge my brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church to do is to stay and fight, and to do so on behalf of themselves and their families, but especially on behalf of those who have suffered so grievously at the hands of wicked men. Of course, I am also happy if those outside the Church find some illumination in these chapters as well. I want to be clear about something at the outset. I am not speaking in the name of my brother bishops, or of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, or of the Vatican. I have no authority whatsoever to do so. I am speaking in my own name, as a Catholic, a priest, and a bishop. My prayer is that these reflections might encourage Catholics who are attempting to navigate today in very choppy waters. Chapter 1, The Devil's Masterpiece. <clears throat> We're on page 3. It has been a diabolical masterpiece. I am talking about the scandal that has gripped the Catholic Church for the past 30 years and that continues to wreak havoc even today. When I was going through the seminary, it was fashionable to conceive of the devil as a symbol for the evil in the world, a sort of colorful literary device. But the storm of wickedness that has compromised the work of the church in every way and that has left countless lives in ruins is just too ingenious to have been the result of impersonal forces alone or merely human contrivance. It seems so thoroughly thought through, so comprehensively intentional, certainly in the ordinary run of history, bad things happen. But this scandal is just too exquisitely designed. It has corroded Catholic credibility so completely that the church's work in evangelization, catechesis, preaching, outreach to the poor, recruitment of vocations, and education as has been crippled, and more terribly, members of the church, especially its most vulnerable, have been forced to live through a nightmare from which it seems impossible to wake. If the church had a personal enemy, and indeed the devil is known as the enemy of the human race, it is hard to imagine that he could have come up with a better plan. In saying this, I am by no means implying that human beings bear no responsibility, just the contrary. The devil works typically through suggestion, insinuation, temptation, and seduction. He is essentially powerless until he finds men and women who will co cooperate with him. 
The best visual depiction of this dynamic is in the fresco by the early Renaissance painter Luca Signorelli, which can be found in the cathedral at Orvito. It is a dramatic picture of the advent of the Antichrist, the central figure, figure looking every inch the stereotypical Christ figure, is listening intently to the whispered suggestions of the devil who presses in close to him. Only a careful examination reveals that what he looks like, the Antichrist's left arm, is in fact the arm of the devil, which has reached creepily through the Antichrist's vesture. Whose voice is it? Whose gesture is it? Both the man's and the devil's? So it goes. And so it has gone these past several decades as the dark power through far too many willing cooperators has done his work. Surveying the landscape of the church today brings to mind a dismal and, attesting, and arresting passage from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Well, interesting that this says Jeremiah here, that we read that this morning. In the wake of the Babylonian devastation of the Israelite capital, the writer takes in the scene in and around Jerusalem. If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with the sword, or if I enter the city, behold, diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest have gone roving about in the land that they do not know. Wow. That is the same verse that I read to you today. And where I came across the verse is um, in our uh, Liturgy of the Hours the other day, and I thought how fitting um, that was. So um, anyways, on the blasted and devastated ground today, landmarks have fallen, and even the insiders have lost their way. Conservative estimates indicate that the Catholic Church in the United States has paid out $4 billion in sex abuse settlements. Let that figure sink in. $4 billion that came in large part from the generous donations of Catholic people. $4 billion that could have been used to build parishes, schools, universities, hospitals, and seminaries. $4 billion that could have gone to educate children, to heal the sick, to care for the hungry and the homeless, to propagate the gospel. Wow, so true. But that is an aspect of the devastation that is relatively easy to measure. The hurt and alienation felt by Catholics goes so far and deep that it is scarcely possible to gauge. Consider this. Every particular act of sexual abuse by a priest establishes an extraordinary ripple effect through families, parishes, and communities. A single child might have been directly mistreated, but the anger, fear, and shame radiate out to mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, friends and classmates. Now think of thousands of cases of sexual abuse by clergy and the sickening influence that has gone out from each of them. The rot has reached to virtually every cell and molecule in the mystical body of Christ. The priest perpetrated this, this abuse makes it, of course, particularly awful. In accordance with the sound, in accord with the sound Catholic theology, the faithful 
have long taken priests to be not merely ministers or preachers, but sacred figures conformed in a unique way to Christ through ordination. The Spanish word for priest catches this nicely, sacredote, in parens, holy one. Father Rangero Cantalamesa, preacher to the papal household, has said that due to his unique identity, the smile of a priest is, for many Catholic people, the smile of God himself. A word of comfort from a priest is a word of comfort coming from the mouth of God. Tragically, the same logic obtains when priests become abusive. A child or teenager who was sexually assaulted by a priest felt violated by God. Aggressed by the one he expected to be the source of greatest comfort and peace. The explosion that this cognitive dissonance has produced in the minds and souls of the abused is beyond staggering. It has given rise to a suffering that can only be characterized as metaphysical. The creator of the world has turned into an enemy. In the summer of 2018, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania issued a report of the cases of sexual abuse of minors by clergy in the state over roughly the previous 70 years. The number of abusive priests was depressing enough roughly 300 priests and 1,000 victims, but the details of the cases sickened the church, indeed the whole country. A group of priests in the Pittsburgh diocese acted as a predatory ring, identifying potential candidates for abuse and passing information about them back and forth. They would take Polaroid photos of the children, in one case requesting a young man to take off his clothes and stand on the bed in the attitude of the crucified Christ Jesus. To children that they found particularly attractive, they would give gold crosses to wear around their necks, so as to signal their availability to other pedophile priests. One priest raped a young girl in the hospital just after she had her tonsils removed. Another raped a girl, got her pregnant, and then arranged for the young woman to have an abortion. A Pittsburgh priest would give homeless boys drugs, money, and alcohol in exchange for sex. And while these crimes were being committed, the priests in question were typically removed from the parish or institution where the complaint originated but then reassigned somewhere else in the diocese, free to abuse again. As it is now well established, this pattern of abuse, reassignment, and cover-up was repeated again and again ac across the Catholic world, fueling the massive frustration of the offended parties. In the same terrible summer of 2018, it was revealed that then Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, retired Archbishop of Washington, D.C., had been a sexual abuser throughout his clerical career. The case that broke open the story had to do with a young altar server from whom McCarrick, then a priest of the Archdiocese of New York, sexually abused in the sacristy of St. Patrick's Cathedral just before midnight mass, as the boy was vesting for the liturgy. But as more and more victims came forward, it became clear that the cardinal, in his various assignments as bishop and archbishop, 
preyed especially on seminarians, those young men over whom he had most complete control. His favorite tactic was to invite those he found attractive to a beach house that he kept in New Jersey, always careful to include one more student than the beds in the place could accommodate, forcing one of them to sleep with him. One of his victims recounts a particularly sickening story of McCarrick watching the young man change into his bathing suit and subsequently on the beach, slipping his hand under the seminarian's suit. If anyone wonders why these young men didn't object, run away, or punch the cardinal in the face, he has to recall that these victims wanted more than anything in the world to be priests, and that McCarrick was the one who had the absolute power to determine whether that dream would be realized or not. And he was, as far as they were concerned, the supreme religious authority, authority in their lives. To whom would they complain? The apostolic nuncio? Even supposing they knew each such a person existed, they probably would have feared reaching out to him, presuming he either wouldn't believe them or would chastise them for bringing such a charge. In a word, it was a situation not unlike that involving young actors and actresses and their abusive studio bosses. The enormous power differential allowed the aggressor to get what he wanted and keep the victims quiet. Just as bishop, just as bishop after bishop around the country quietly reshuffled abusive clergy from parish to parish, so it seems numerous bishops and archbishops and cardinals, both in the country and in the Vatican, knew all about McCarrick's outrageous behavior and did nothing in response to it. Or rather worse, they continued to advance him with the ecclesiastical ladder from auxiliary bishop to bishop of a diocese to archbishop and then finally to cardinal. Even after he resigned from his post in Washington, D.C., immediately upon returning 75, apparently at the urging of Pope Benedict XVI, McCarrick continued to be a roving ambassador for the church and a kingmaker in the American hierarchy, again, while everyone knew about his disturbing and abusive tendencies. The average Catholic in America could certainly be forgiving, forgiven for thinking that something like a conspiracy of silence and a deep corruption obtained within the institutional life of the church. We're going to quit here on page 12. Uh, we'll start in the middle of the page um, next time. But I wanted to go back to um, what was said um, on page 10. I'm going to reread that to you. Oh, let's see. Okay, this is the part. McCarrick watching the young man change into his bathing suit and subsequently on the beach, slipping his hand under this seminarian suit. If anyone wonders why these young men didn't object, run away, or punch the cardinal in the face, he has to recall that these victims wanted more than anything in the world to be priest and that McCarrick was one who had the absolute power to determine whether that dream would be realized or not. You know, 
So now I'd like to draw your attention during that, during that time when all these things were going on and in the seminaries, um, the homosexual network was thriving. Um, and you know, we have Pittsburgh as um, a clear case, but it's, it's, it's definitely in other seminaries as well. But um, you know, what about those, what about those priests in Carmel um, and as Catholics, um, we we love and we pray for our priests. Um, we pray for all our priests, for the good, bad, and the ugly. We pray for all of them. We pray for their souls, and um, you know. So it, you know, it brings our thoughts to you know, what about seminarians? And I think you've heard us talk before about it. The the unordainables. What about the the seminarians who in that homosexual environment? and that propaganda going on in the seminaries. Um, what about those that said, I'm not doing that? What about those that refused to, um, to go along and be silenced, silenced so that they would um, be ordained? Um, what about those? And what happened to those? And so we, I have, we have some questions here for you today to think about. Um, it is dark inside the wolf, Pastor. Do you agree with what Bishop Barron says on page 10? And that is what we just read. Do you know men who want to be priests so bad they would do anything or omit anything to get ordained? Do you know men who want to be priests so bad that they would destroy Catholic community to get ordained or stay ordained? Do you know men who want to be priests so bad they would destroy Catholic doctrine to get ordained or stay ordained? Like Bishop Barron, Father, would you alert the laity of such dangerous conditions within the church in imitation of the good pastor who confronted evil? The absent companion, the, or the unordained, the unordainables, Father, do you have knowledge of men who were not ordained because they refused to do wrong and were not ordained because of that act? Father, will you join me and others in prayer for your absent companions who were not ordained and remain unordained because they would not agree to be silent, would not agree to shut up about what they have seen and experienced in church in seminary? As a pastor, will you agree to pray for these priests who were sent by our Father for ordination and were not received to be ordained for earthly liturgy and will for the first time participate in the heavenly liturgy as priests will celebrate their first liturgy in heaven? Do you think about these unordained men as your superiors, that some have guardian angels that are assigned only to bishops and archbishops? that the fullness of this reality will blossom in heaven, it will not remain hidden forever. As pastor, have you committed the sin of omerta, sins against truth and justice, by remaining a silent bystander to conditions that exist in church governance that are contrary to the gospel? Good Catholics all have given something, but some have given all. 
Your absent companion priest reminds you, it is dark inside the wolf. Okay, we're going to end here with a prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Goodbye, and until next time.